Today we shall continue with our you know, series of uh, Dhamma talks on you know, wisdom and some, uh, based on uh, the topics of the two preceding you know, talks, it's uh, easy to you know, guess uh, you know, what uh, today's talk is going to be about. <laughs> uh, so today's Dhamma talk is going to be on uh, anatta, which is uh, the third of the three universal uh, characteristics. And uh, what we shall do is uh, tonight we shall take a look at uh, the etymology of the term uh, anatta and then make a distinction between, uh, and then define the word anatta uh, in terms of uh, meaning, and uh, uh, then uh, we shall make a crucial dis- distinction between anatta you know, from or, or you know, the uh, the way the term atta is being used on a you know, conventional level and what is meant by uh, anatta you know, from an ultimate point of view, and uh, then you know, different. Uh, you know, different people's opinions on you know, the existence or non-existence of uh, a self and then you know, the Buddha's uh, position towards uh, Atta and uh, Anatta. And then if time you know, allows, you know, we shall you know, take a look at um, uh, how you know, this notion of uh, a self uh, arises from a Buddhist uh, perspective. And um, you know, then how you know, what, you know, the understanding of anatta you know, develops in the course of uh, the meditation you know, practice. Now today's talk you know, will be to some extent you know, again you know, be based on you know, the explanations given by you know, Venerable Jnana Rama in his book, uh, The Seven you know, Contemplations, and there on you know, the section of uh, Anatta, which is very uh, helpful and very, and very much applies to you know, the meditation uh, practice. Now, as uh, a prologue to you know, the topic in the Visuddhi Magra and its uh, ninth uh, chapter, uh, or 16th uh, chapter, sorry, you know, we find the following you know, uh, verse. And it says, and I'm quoting, mere suffering exists, no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Nibbana is, but not the man or woman that enters it. And the path is, but no traveler on it is seen. Now, with regards to the contemplation of uh, anatta, we can say, that uh, when it is uh, developed, it leads to an abandoning of uh, the wrongful perception of a self. So, anatta nupasanam bhavento nitno atasanyam pajahati in 
the Pali scriptural language. Now, as for you know, the term anatta and its uh, etymology, it uh, consists of uh, two parts, namely an and atta, or another way of breaking it up is as na and atta, and so, you know, so together you know, it's or combined, it becomes anatta. And the prefix na is a negative marker, and atsa can be taken to mean an apparent self, apparent self, a person, or a being, or an well, an individual. And when the and then when we combine these two parts, namely the prefix na and atsa, you know, then the combined meaning is you know, the absence of an apparent self, a person, a being, or individual. And so there's no difference in meaning when we explain it the other way as an and atta. And the term atta, namely apparent self, will be or it is used in the text in different ways. And sometimes it's used in the sense of oneself or in the sense of the mind or referring to the body. And as, a, as the collective unit of the five aggregates. And the Buddha, even though he is known as the proclaimer of the doctrine or the teaching on the anatta, the absence of a self, yet he does speak of atta, of a self. And in particular, during some of his discourses. And to some, this is misleading. And therefore, we need to clarify that such kind of usage of the word atta is only to be understood on a, or in a conventional sense and not in an ultimate sense. And the Buddha himself says that these are worldly designations, worldly terms, worldly expressions, worldly concepts, by means of which the Tathagata expresses himself without clinging to them. So what we need to distinguish here is the conventional usage of the term atsa and then um, and then the ultimate use of the term anatta and when 
we communicate with one another, then naturally, for the sake of clear, you know, of clear communication, it is certainly helpful and certainly necessary you know, to, you know, when one speaks of oneself, to you know, then express this you know, through the personal pronoun of you know, I, uh, or you know the possessive pronoun of you know, my and mine, oh, or if one is uh, speaking of another person's uh, property, you know, well then this need to be uh, clarified by you know, the usage of the uh, appropriate uh, pronoun. Now, so even. If in one's meditation practice one has understood that ultimately there exists no self, yet in the text of ordinary communication, mundane communication, we may still make use of terms such as I and my and mine and you and your and yours. And so, thus, for oneself, clearly knowing you know, the difference and knowing that ultimately speaking, there is no self. Now, the issue whether a self exists or doesn't exist has been you know, debated already you know, for you know, a long you know, time. And you know, different people have had you know, different you know, opinions on you know, this you know, issue. And it is you know, the Buddha you know, who you know, stands out as uh, the uh, promoter of uh, you know, the teaching of an, of an absence of a self. And uh, this particular aspect of anatta makes uh, Buddhism uh, rather uh, unique. It's uh, the anatta teaching is the unique part of uh, Buddhism. There are other uh, the aspects of uh, you know, the teachings uh, of the Buddha you know, that somewhat you know, resemble you know, parts you know, that we find in uh, Hinduism. Now, when we think of um, of a self, then the self usually tends to be quite strong, especially for non-meditators. And thus, we identify with our body and thinking that this is the seed of the self. Or we may be uh, identifying you know, with our views, and uh, you know, they then become my you know, views. Or you know, we may be identifying 
with certain, certain mental states or certain aspects of the mind, and we take those to be the self or soul. And very pronounced in society is an identification with one's status and one the, the position that one occupies in society you know, very much you know, then you know, determines uh, uh, one's own you know, value. And the same thing goes you know, for you know, one's certain profession. People like uh, to think of themselves as, uh, well, I am... Um, let's say you know, a physician, or uh, or maybe a famous uh, athlete, or uh, maybe a politician, or a manager, or whatever you, know, you like. And so people tend to identify you know, still you know, with uh, other things, namely with their uh, nationality. So, considering themselves to be, well, a U.S. American citizen or a citizen of Nicaragua or Colombia or whatever other country there is. And another sense of identification with regards to the self is with our possessions. So the things that we have accumulated over time, these we consider as mine. And if these possessions get well attacked in one way or another or threatened, then this is tantamount to a threat or an attack to our sense of a self. And the same thing goes certainly for instance for our views. Even if another person doesn't say anything directly about our personality, our character, our knowledge or absence of knowledge, yet if this other person attacks our views, then this is seen as an attack on our selves. And it's painful, it may be perceived as painful, and under normal circumstances, we think that we need to defend ourselves. Now, in... In Christianity, there is the notion of the existence of a self or soul. And so this then is some immaterial essence of, or the immaterial essence of an individual life. And this is then uh, thoughts to be uh, the principle of uh, you know, thought and action in a person 
or that which of things wills and feels and knows and sees, and also that which appropriates and owns. Now, when it comes to the view of, or the view of the Upanishads on uh, on the notion of a self or a soul, then we find the following, namely, according to one Upanishad, the Chanda. Upanishad, we find, or it says, that the self is characterized to be free from death, and vimhrutyu in Sanskrit, and then free from sorrow, visoka, and then that this self is supposed to have real thoughts, namely satya samkalpa in Sanskrit. And this individual self or soul, which is known as Atman in Hinduism, is believed to have the following qualities, namely of being uh, eternal, of being permanent, everlasting, and unchanging. On top of this, you know, having the quality of being blissful, and uh, then furthermore, you know, being autonomous and unaffected by the you know, vicissitudes of uh, change. And you know, furthermore, the um, the belief is that the size of um, uh, this uh, self will depend on the being that it is uh, dwelling in. So, uh, the size of a uh, of an ant will be uh, well very tiny, whereas uh, the size of an elephant will be very big and uh, overwhelming. And from this then you can imagine how big uh, the size of yourself is. (laughs) But this is just according to Hinduism. And then furthermore, this uh, self is thought to be the agent behind all senses and all activities. So it is the one that is in control, that is in charge of what happens. Now, at the time of the Buddha, various kinds of religious or philosophical teachers were around. And for instance, there were the so-called materialists, who thought that a human, the human existence is defined only by, or is defined only materially, and so we have the 
philosopher Ajita Kambali, who thought that one's being is made up of the four elements. And that there are no such things as good or evil deeds. And another one, another materialist uh, was uh, Pakura Kachayana, and certainly he thought of uh, the human existence as uh, basically consisting of, or as uh, um, consisting of seven uh, immortal principles. And which would conduct our our existence, and again, doing wholesome deeds or unwholesome deeds didn't really make a difference. Even the act of killing another person had no particular consequence to it, since one is introducing the sword only into the space between those seven immortal principles. And so then one is not harming anything or anyone. And just from this, you can see that the views that one might be holding uh, have a tremendous uh, influence on uh, the way we uh, conduct our uh, lives. And we um, may then, um, based on some uh, wrongful uh, view, uh, end up doing all sorts of deeds which uh, may have uh, terrible uh, consequences. So, did, uh, well, obviously the Buddha uh, did not uh, agree uh, with uh, the views of uh, these uh, two materialists, as uh, given Kachayana and Kesaka Kambali. And then uh, the Buddha himself proposed a view or teaching that was entirely different. And um, this is the view of the non-existence of a self. But before we go into the Buddha's point of view, there's still other viewpoints around, just to name a few more. And a famous, um, well, European philosopher of a French origin by the name of René Descartes said something such as cogito ergo sum, which then means what? I reflect, therefore I am, or I think, therefore I am. And, um, well, 
Now, does from a Buddhist point of view, uh, does this make much sense or not? Uh, not necessarily. Or you know, we could you know, then, uh, based on the you know, same idea, you know, formulate, well, I feel, therefore I am. Or I'm having perceptions, therefore I am. So obviously what you know, René Descartes you know, did was he took one aspect of human existence, which is uh, uh, one aspect uh, out of the you know, five aggregates, and uh, you know, then he identified uh, it uh, you know, to you know, be you know, the self or you know, soul. And as meditators, you know, very soon, within you know, just a few hours of intensive meditation practice, you know, we realize that this certain you know, thinking you know, keeps coming and going, and it's rather impermanent in nature, and oftentimes rather illogical. You know, so you know, it would be uh, even dangerous to identify you know, with it as a, in terms of a self. And so then, in the connection of you know, thinking, an American philosopher by you know, the name of you know, Professor James you know, said certainly something uh, remarkable, namely, the thoughts, the thought is the thinker. And so this is much more Buddhistic. And um, we could, um, you know, and it shows the functional nature of uh, our you know, thinking. And uh, by way of extension, we can say that the feeding uh, is uh, you know, that which you know, feels, or you know, perception is that which Schoetner perceives. So the mental state, the mental factor of perception is the one that perceives and not some uh, assumed uh, entity like uh, a self or a soul. Now, the Buddha pointed out based on his own meditation practice and uh, the omniscient knowledge that certainly he had gained, that you know, human existence is very much governed you know, by a functional you know, way of uh, things uh, happening. And that certain things are happening owing to certain causal conditions and that they do not require the existence of a self or soul. Now, the Buddha has taken four major approaches to, um, well, defeat 
the notion of uh, the wrongful notion of a self. And the first you know, such approach is uh, known in the Pani scriptural language as Datu Wawatana. And Wawatana is an analysis, and Datu are you know, your primary elements. And we could you know, then um, well extend you know, this and you know, say you know, Kanda Wawatana you know, or Ayatana Wawatana. Namely, the analysis of experience into the aggregates or into the sense spheres. Now, what we do during our meditation practice, and especially during the first few days of a retreat, is just this, namely, Datu Wawatana. And uh, as meditators, we simply observe what actually comes up. And as we keep doing this over and over again during the sitting sessions, during the walking sessions, during the general activities, we find that just bodily and mental formations arise and... Uh, to some, it comes as a surprise uh, that there is uh, no self uh, there, and uh, also uh, no uh, well, some supreme being. And this uh, uh, direct experience, at least to some extent, uh, then uh, weakens uh, our our strong attachment to the notion or, or to the yeah, well, notion of a self or the existence of a self. And the Buddha in one of the discourses gave a very nice illustration for this Dhatu Wawatana. And how one, how the perception of something changes, namely, to um, to a butcher who rears a cow. Well, first, at first, it's this animal is seen or related to as a cow. But then, after you know, the butcher has slaughtered you know, this cow and then separated it into different you know, pieces and has then taken these you know, pieces of meat uh, with him, and you know, then he sits you know, somewhere at a crossroads and sells you know, the you know, meat, pieces of meat. Well, at that moment, he no longer sells cow, but rather just pieces of meat. And somewhere in the process, from first the cow to the pieces of meat, the notion of a cow disappears.
And so, so likewise, as we kind of analytically cut up you know, this uh, body and mind of ours, you know, we you know, then uh, you know, find its uh, different constituent uh, parts, and uh, then with this we see you know, there is no self or you know, individual uh, involved. So they're just uh, you know, the elements and or certain you know, parts, and that's uh, you know, that is all. So this uh, observation, patient observation of uh, whatever predominant object arises, is uh, meant you know, to you know, bring you know, bring across you know, the understanding that ultimately. That no one is at home. <laughs> and then the second, you know, the second approach to defeat the notion of the self is uh, by you know, way of uh, you know, the causal you know, link or relationship uh, among you know, physical and mental formations. And Again, this is something that all of you uh, have done and at times are still doing. Namely, when you observe these obvious physical and mental formations, then sooner or later you get the point that one particular object may be related to another object. And... And simply, there is no self or soul involved in it. It just happens quite naturally. And so when much heat arises in the body, there's perspiration, and then one feels that one is too hot, and so one maybe takes off one layer of clothes. And this happens uh, naturally uh, owing to certain uh, conditions. And it's not uh, a self or soul uh, who is uh, controlling uh, or overseeing uh, this uh, process or uh, who is uh, initiating this process. At first it may seem that way, uh, but ultimately uh, it is not. And... The third approach that the Buddha has taken to defend, to defeat the wrongful notion of the existence of a self is simply by pointing out the qualities of the supposed self. As we've heard early on, Usually, in even in Christianity, but definitely so in the Upanishads, the Atman, the self or soul, is assumed to have a permanent, unchanging nature. And on top of this, it is assumed 
to be blissful or conducive to, to bliss. And furthermore, it is believed to be autonomous and kind of in charge of new things. And the Buddha simply asks two or three vital questions, namely, when we observe formations and we find that they are impermanent by nature, condition phenomena or formations, then this already conflicts with the first aspect or the first quality that the self or soul is supposed to possess, namely that it's eternal and permanent, not changing. And then in our meditation practice, we find that condition formations are unsatisfactory, and this then conflicts with the assumption that the self is blissful or conducive to bliss. And so if some phenomenon, whatever the phenomenon may be, is impermanent, and then on top of that it's also unsatisfactory, how can it end up being uh, a self. And so, since the self uh, is supposed to be in control of things and uh, of a permanent nature and uh, leading to uh, bliss. So with this, the very notion of uh, the existing existence of a self uh, simply collapses. And the fourth line of approach uh, to uh, defeat the notion of self is simply by way of certain assumptions. So if we follow the qualities that the self or soul is supposed to possess, namely that it is in control of things, so in charge of things, and that it is permanent and not changing, then we should, and then this self should be in a position to say, okay, I do not want to grow old. And human existence proves that this is happening or not. It's not happening. And the idea of the self is, again, it's it's supposed to be in control of things. And so so naturally, um, who likes uh, falling sick? So then we, by willpower, we say, okay, I don't want to get sick uh, throughout my lifetime. And uh, does this correspond... uh, or how does this relate to our you know, actual experiences? Hmm? Nicola, you never fall sick? Or oh, it doesn't make any difference. Yes, indeed. Now, so whether one holds this certain view or not, it doesn't make a difference. One will still fall sick. No? And uh, at least at times, not all the time. 
and so on and so forth. Maybe one, you know, one more point. Um, again, the assumption is that the self is in control of things, and so then we should be in a position to say, okay, uh, I, will, I will want to experience only pleasant or pleasurable experiences. So no pains and aches there. No, no difficult mental states uh, uh, are you know, supposed to arise. And all we need to do is just one single sitting meditation and we find that this is not working. And so, at least not if we're practicing Vipassana. And so, so, in these four basic ways, the Buddha is showing that this whole notion of a self is rather shaky and lacks any particular meaning. And to make this well the the unrealistic nature of the self clear the buddha speaks of it as an imagining namely the notion of i am uh, he says is an imagining manita in the Pali scriptural language. And the same thing goes for the imagining as I am this, or uh, I am that, or I should be, or I shall not be, and so on and so forth. And uh, he then expresses the same thing again in different ways, and he says that you know, the thought I am is a, an agitation, so-called injita in Pali. The expression I am is a palpitation, fandita. It is a conceptual proliferation, namely papanchita. And certainly it is, and certain I am is a conceit, uh, managata, in the Pali scriptural language. And basically, this notion or concept of a self, um, well, arises or must arise owing to certain causes. And a small baby will not yet um, relates uh, you know, to you know, the world uh, in the terms, or, or will not har- not yet harbor this notion of a self. But uh, only you know, later on, as uh, you know, the days and weeks go by, uh, will it uh, you know, then uh, assume you know, this uh, you know, notion of uh, you know, of a self. And so this is something that certainly comes along uh, in our or during our development as uh, a human being. Now, involved in the fabrication of uh, the notion of self are certain 
underlying or latent tendencies of the mind, and those are unwholesome you know, mental states. And the ones you know, that uh, seem to be you know, the most influential are ignorance, awija, and uh, then you know, further, and so by this is meant not knowing the truth, so not seeing formations as they truly are, not understanding the sense store processes uh, as they actually occur. And then furthermore, involved uh, is craving and uh, in the form of attachment, desire, enjoyment, and in particular in the form of possessiveness. And so we take then objects to be uh, mine. And so, and then furthermore, pride and conceit, mana, also plays an important role. And then it is well a certain standard or our our eye concept that becomes. You know, the standard of uh, judgment or you know, measurement against which uh, you know, we you know, then you know, judge or measure you know, the things around us. And finally, involved in the fabrication of uh, self is also wrong view you know, deity, you know, which you know, refers to you know, some distorted uh, view. Now, let us take the seeing process and when we carefully observe, carefully and mindfully observe the seeing process and the different elements involved in it, then we find that in the presence of a visible, a clear-cut visible object and this, uh, you know, the eyes, the physical eyes with which we see, or otherwise the you know, eye sensitivity, plus uh, in the presence of light and uh, uh, attention, manasikara, well, you know, seeing consciousness will arise. And please, for better, for your better understanding, by consciousness is meant just the bare taking in of some uh, data, of some uh, uh, well, some input. And all that consciousness does is to be conscious of, but not more than this. And other activities like perceiving or so. Uh, uh, requires uh, the activity of some other uh, mental state, namely of uh, the mental factor of perception. And uh, the coming together of uh, these uh, three parts, namely the visible object, then the 
um, the eye sensitivity or the eyes, and then seeing consciousness, this is known in Pali as contact, seeing contact, fasa in the Pali scriptural language. So in other words, uh, the object, the external object, so to speak, impinges on, uh, on the mind. And based on this, on this certain contact, then arises feeling, which is another mental state, and it's feeling that feels the quality of an object as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then it is said whatever is felt is certainly perceived. So perception is then the next aspect in our in in the seeing process, and the same thing applies to any of the other sense door processes. And so, upon close observation, we find that these different elements are involved, and. Now, this then defeats the notion of what? Of self, in which way? Hmm? Yes, or to put it differently, as I am seeing. And see, um, in ordinary life, so easily do we use expressions such as I am seeing, I am hearing, I am smelling, tasting, touching, and uh, thinking. It happens frequently. And so uh, it seems like a given reality that the self indeed is uh, well carrying out uh, the sense process. When, in fact, upon closer and mindful observation, we find this is not the case at all. And so, as mentioned at the outset of our retreat, there are many, many cases of a huge difference between the first superficial appearance of something and what actually goes on. And this case here, namely the case of the seeing process, would be another uh, case in point. So what appears at the surface, namely I am seeing, is one thing, and what we then no, to understand it to be upon closer observation is another new thing. Now, Just briefly, maybe how this imagining 
as I am, Asmi you know, takes you know, place. So when a sense door you know, process uh, takes place, then it you know, will be you know, connected with a feeling and you know, there may be you know, enjoyment of you know, this you know, feeling and so, or enjoyment you know, of you know, the sense door process and so, as a result of this you know, well, craving you know, gets activated. And so, with this, you know, then comes a certain uh, possessiveness. And then, as uh, you know, referred to earlier on, the latent defilement of pride and conceit comes in. And so, so there's this sense store process of seeing and uh, you know, the pride you know, then you know, assures or, or um, well asserts itself and says, well, I am seeing. And so it is then the seeing process is related to the notion of, of a self. And on top of this, it doesn't end here, then frequently human beings tend to compare and then they compare themselves against other people's certain experiences. And so sometimes they compare themselves as favorably or as the same equal or as inferior. And in all cases, this may lead to well, suffering. And so, uh, then uh, out and involved in this process, of course, is certain ignorance, not understanding how you know, this seeing process actually you know, takes place. And so, then on top of, um, on top of the you know, pride and conceit involved in so, you know, the craving you know, involved, you know, there is you know, this you know, notion that you know, we are uh, in control of you know, things. So it is the self that is you know, seeing. When in fact, upon mindful observation of the seeing process, we find it's a rather functional process you know, that happens you know, pretty irrespective of uh, one's uh, notion of uh, self. And then on top of this, when we see a particular object, then we may start forming a certain view about it. And um, a view or a concept or an opinion, namely as uh, mine. And all of this 
is, as we then have seen, rather unrealistic. And further stages in this process of mental fabrication or mental proliferation are to relate to formations as I am this or that. So one identifies with something and then such as one's, one's position, one's status, one's material wealth, one's education, and so on. And furthermore, identification could furthermore be with the five aggregates or one or the other of the aggregates. So one might identify with one's body. And then there's a further step in this process of the mental fabrication of a self. And this is with regard to the future, whatever might happen in the future. And thinking of oneself as either, well, being eternal, so even if death occurs, well, the self or soul continues to exist, or the other view is that of the annihilation view, and it holds that with the time of death, or as the time of death comes, well, that's, that's it, that's the end of it. There's no future life or existence for a self. Now, in the meditation practice, we then uh, come to uh, understand uh, that uh, there is, ultimately speaking, uh, there is uh, no uh, self. And one way uh, this uh, happens, a common uh, expression, when meditators observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, they find after a while that the rising and falling is happening all by itself. It's happening automatically. There's no self involved. One is no longer, as before, manipulating the rise and fall or interfering with it, making it intentionally slowing it down so that one has more time to observe it carefully. And other um, expressions of or in connection with self might refer to the walking meditation. A meditator might say 
you know, things like, well, when undertaking the walking meditation, carefully observing the lifting, you know, moving and placing, it certainly seemed as if you know, the walking just ha- happened by itself. So the foot was moving forward all by itself. You know, I, hadn't, I didn't need to do uh, anything uh, whatsoever. And you know, similar experiences you know, may you know, occur you know, even you know, during other activities like you know, the general you know, activities. And a meditator may, you know, with regard to you know, mental states, you know, find that mental states are arising of their own accord. And it's not me who is uh, making uh, such and such a mental state occur, well, happening. And these mental states, they come and go of uh, their own uh, accord. And sometimes meditators say, yeah, that uh, when observing an object, uh, they see it as uh, hollow or uh, lacking uh, a core. This too is an aspect of uh, anatta. Now, the understanding of uh, anatta is uh, much more difficult to gain you know, than the understanding of uh, anicca and uh, dukkha. And uh, we can read as many books on anatta as we like. If we're not practicing, we may not uh, really uh, get the point uh, what is meant by anatta. So the best uh, access to a direct understanding of anatta is read or comes uh, through the meditation uh, practice. Now, when we undertake the meditation practice, then over time, the aspect of anatta will come up here and there. And anatta does not, the understanding of anatta doesn't arise right away at the beginning of one's meditation practice. As usual, one needs to undertake a certain course of training and one needs to be well established in the precepts and one needs to practice restraint of the senses, slow down one's activities and then be mindful of whatever is occurring. And if one keeps doing this, then after a while, as we have seen earlier on, a meditator then keeps analyzing, or in other words, discerning mental and physical phenomena. And a meditator sees that just these two categories exist, and there's no space or no room for a self. And this 
is this doesn't mean that you've already gained an understanding, a deep understanding of anatta, but at least it is kind of a preliminary understanding that is weakening the notion of a self. So if you like to, it's kind of like the first punch into this concept of a self, weakening it to some uh, extend and when we when we meditate like this then we find uh, well all sorts of physical formations uh, occur and uh, they all boil down you know, to you know, various uh, to the four you know, primary elements and then apart from these we have mental phenomena which consist of mental states like feeding and feeding just feels and perception just perceives and consciousness just is conscious of and so on and so forth. And this then really brings the point across that there is no self in charge. And as we then continue with our meditation practice, we understand in a direct manner that these physical and mental formations are related by cause and effect, which is the essence of the second insight knowledge. And at this point, we understand that things are not happening in a causeless manner, nor are they happening owing to some the influence of some supreme being, some fictitious supreme being. And what this furthermore shows is that a self is not involved. Now, there's no self, no no agent that is in control of things. So from a Hinduistic point of view, there is no jiva atta or atman, individual self or soul that is well conducting the seeing process and the hearing process and so on. And so this understanding you know, then again serves as another you know, powerful you know, punch uh, into you know, this concept uh, of, uh, of the existence of uh, a self. And so the self gets uh, you know, further uh, weakened. And when we then continue with our meditation practice, as we have seen already during the preceding two Dhamma talks, well, a meditator directly experiences the impermanence of formations, which in Pali is known as anicca. And this understanding too is relevant in the context of the so-called or assumed existence of a self. Now, as you remember, as you will remember, 
you know, from the beginning of the talk, the self uh, you know, from oftentimes from a Hindu, but even from a Christian point of view, is supposed to be a permanent entity. And now you know, we find you know, in our own meditation practice that all, form, all conditioned formations you know, keep changing all the time. So, which then you know, contradicts you know, this permanent nature of, uh, uh, of the self. And when the universal characteristic of uh, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha comes into the foreground of our experience, then we see that formations are unsatisfactory, and this then contradicts uh, the wrongful assumption uh, in connection with the self, namely that it is blissful. And so, so these two, you know, namely Anicca and Satna Dukkha, you know, help us you know, to further you know, weaken you know, the notion of uh, a self. And so, you know, things you know, then you know, go on, and so when then our third insight knowledge matures further, then an actual understanding of the non-self nature of phenomena arises. And it is at this point that indeed a closer or first deeper understanding of anatta occurs. And this understanding then takes the place of uh, the wrongful perception of as a uh, as a self by a way of substitution of uh, the opposites and so with this you know, we then get the point you know, that we are not certain possessing anything that we're so we're not the owner of any formation, nor are we in control of anything, but rather things are happening of their own accord. And this particular understanding of of anatta, of non-self, then gets further deepened as a meditator continues with his or her meditation practice and then experiences the fourth insight knowledge. And it is in the fourth insight knowledge that a meditator usually sees formations as arising and passing away. So, Two aspects are in the foreground, namely the origination and the dissolution of formations. Now, one of the assumptions or, or yeah, assumptions, views in connection with the notion I shall be something in the future, so I shall be eternal or shall not be eternal. Well, this certainly falls with the, both of these fall with the fourth insight knowledge. Namely, 
upon seeing, frequently seeing the origination of formations, how they keep arising, arising, arising. Well, this then defeats the notion of the annihilation view. And so when a meditator sees formations as continuously dissolving, namely the second aspect of the fourth insight knowledge, well, this then takes care of the wrongful notion that formations are eternal and that the self is eternal. And so thus, these two wrong views get in connection with the self, gets corrected through direct experience. And the view of annihilationism is known as Ucheda Deity in the Pali scripture language, whereas the eternity view is known as Sasata Deity. Now, as a meditator goes on practicing in the fifth insight knowledge, the knowledge of dissolution, some more or further aspect of anatta will come up and meditators tend to have an experience of emptiness. And then as a meditator carries on with his or her practice, he he or she will experience anatta in other insight knowledges to some extent and very much so as part of the 11th insight knowledge, the knowledge of the equanimity about certain formations, where this aspect of anatta comes into the foreground. And and it needs to, needs to be gained properly you know, for you know, further progress to be uh, possible. And then what comes with this certain understanding of anatta is also a certain degree of equanimity, upeka, towards certain formations, and the mind is no longer, well, um, neither elated nor sad about what is happening. And upon observing formations as they keep arising, a meditator's mind may fall when all the necessary conditions are present. The mindful or the observation it may fall onto a certain object, and the object may be you know, contemplated in the light of anatta, the absence of a self, and anatta then you know, becomes you know, the door you know, to liberation, and uh, as such it is known as the void liberation, sunyata vimokkha. And with this, then, path knowledge and fruition knowledge take Nibbana as an object. And thus, the contemplation of anatta, of the absence of a self, occurs, or is kind of like, like a red thread that's 
goes through the different insight knowledges. At some places, it's more predominant. In other places, it's less predominant. And what this particular contemplation of anatta does, namely, by developing it again and again, it will lead to the abandoning of the distorted or perverted perception. And then it also abandons the distorted consciousness, which is based on distorted perception of formations as as I, as self, as mine. And then it also abandons the wrongful view, taking formations to be mine. And instead, the contemplation of anatta is then helps the meditator to see formations in the light of reality, and this is that there is no self to speak of. And thus, the perception is of anatta, of a non-self, absence of a self, and the consciousness will be accordingly uh, of a, a correct uh, nature. And uh, the view will be uh, that of an absence of a uh, view, of, of a uh, self, sorry. And let me conclude today's uh, demo talk by uh, wishing uh, that uh, may this uh, contemplation of uh, anatta uh, occur in your uh, meditation practice, and uh, may it help you to gain a really deep uh, understanding of uh, anatta, and uh, may this you know, then contribute you know, to you know, your you know, attainment of uh, the uh, path of stream entry and uh, you know, the attainment of uh, that peaceful state of uh, Nibbana. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.